0: Welcome to the See Word, the Conservators podcast. Today we're talking about gemstones and minerals. I'm Jenna Mathiason, an objects conservator based in Kimaldanshire.
1: And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Manchester. Hello.
2: Hello. Good evening. You
1: may
0: notice this is not at all the episode that I said we would be doing at the end of, tail end of the last episode. <laughs> oh, no. There have been some amount of rescheduling and instead we are joined by uh, our fabulous return co-host. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Hi, I'm Bill. I'm a freelance conservator, predominantly in metals, but specialising in precious metals and jewellery. And I'm in London.
1: Welcome back. Yeah,
2: thank you for coming back. Absolute pleasure to be here.
0: I was going to say, If you haven't listened to uh, Bill's Metals episode, then we will link to that in the show notes. And you should definitely Mm -hmm. listen to it now because it's a very good episode. And Bill has an extra sidekick today, which you won't be able to hear. But we do have a kitten with us on this call, which is adorable.
2: He's gorgeous. He's a three-month-old Bengal kitten and he is sound asleep. And the chaos that he's been causing, it's probably a good (laughs) thing that he is sound asleep.
1: (laughs) We're delighted. (laughs) So we came up with this episode idea in the, me- the in uh, well, it was Metals 2, wasn't it? Me- episode. Because we found ourselves talking about jewellery and then talking about stones and gemstones and then finding that that was such a big topic and thinking, ah, we should probably focus on this. So that's what we're doing today.
0: Yeah, it is. I sort of brought on the topic to gemstones mm. and minerals mostly because I thought,
1: because my
0: idea of what these are is so hazy and I'm ashamed of that. So let's well, that was going to be my first
1: question to be honest. Like, okay, so can someone <laughs> tell us what a mineral is?
2: The term mineral is a bit of a umbrella term for a stone that comes mm-hmm. from the ground that has a chemical makeup. So it it is true to say that all gemstones are minerals, every single one of them. The term minerals, it's a Mm. bit hazy in itself. It's it's a very woolly term, but it's it's a stone with a specific chemical makeup, very often sits into families of minerals or or groups of minerals with a, a like chemical makeup. And some of them are very useful. Some of them are very beautiful. Some of them are both. So that, that's really what a, a mineral is. It's a, it's a, a stone that comes from mm-hmm. the earth with a specific chemical makeup. But the term mineral, it's a bit woolly, really.
1: But those are sometimes the most useful words, <laughs> the woolly ones. So when you say useful, what do you mean by useful?
2: Okay, so if you take, for example, ruby. Rubies are remarkably beautiful, as, as we know one of the most popular gemstones ever, but they're actually very, very useful for things like, for example, lasers. Ah, yes. Yeah, a ruby laser produces, as you can imagine, a red light laser that can be used for all Mm. sorts of applications from industrial to medical to light displays. So a a red light laser, very often that's created with a, a ruby crystal. That's one example. If you take, for example, garnet lasers, they tend to be very industrial. They are very, depending on the the type of garnet that's used, they can be very, very powerful, um, so much so that they can be used to cut things like stone and metals. So some stones, yes, they can be very, very beautiful, but they can also be useful as well. That's just an example. That's really cool. Did not know that.
1: (laughs) I didn't know that either. So does that mean I feel like we should talk about deterioration, agents of deterioration for gemstones and minerals in general as a topic? Because I'm guessing there's not much fading involved. Is there any, is there much light related acceleration of deterioration? Because if Not that I I didn't think we were going to be talking about, you know, science collections in terms of there being gemstones. Uh. But if you had, you know, a laser that had a ruby component mm-hmm. do you have to be worried about that as as being a part of the is this can you use up the ruby is this what you're can asking Can you use up the ruby is it going to explode in some kind of like sci-fi
2: is it a consumable
1: is it a consumable thank you yeah i garbled that question is it a consumable
2: in the case of a, a ruby laser no because rubies are remarkably stable right Um, The the, the reason that a ruby is red is chromium. A ruby is, in essence, it's aluminium oxide. But if you just take aluminium oxide by itself, it's a totally clear stone. If you mix in chromium into the crystal matrix, you end up with a ruby. If, however, you mix in various other elements, you can end up with something thoroughly different. It's still aluminium oxide as the base mineral, but, for example, if you add in iron, well, you get a sapphire. So rubies and sapphires, the base stone aluminium oxide, or what we call corundum, they are exactly the same stone. And the truth is that a sapphire can be any colour you choose, provided it is not red caused by chromium.
1: Nah. Oh. so i wonder how much of this episode is going to be talking about sort of capitalism and the sale of <laughs> the fashion well, of things that's,
2: well, well that, that's going to go back to a, a lot of history <laughs> yeah um, it is isn't it diamonds in particular mm. the, the- a lot of um, diamonds are very, very famous. I, I wrote down a few notes because, quite frankly, there are so many of them.
1: As in di- specific diamonds, that are, as in the s- specific stones that are famous?
2: Specific stones that are named diamonds. Oh, so, wow. So, for example, one that I think just about every one of our listeners will have heard of is, of course, the Or, which is an Indian diamond. And the word Kohinoor actually stands for Mountain of Light, which is a pretty good description of the diamond itself. Mm-hmm. This is a big diamond. As it stands, it's one hundred and five point six carats, which equates to about twenty-one grams. Wow, this is quite a heavy diamond. That's a hefty boy.
0: <laughs> Jenny's face is confused. <laughs> no, but that's a hefty boy because I was just thinking, uh, what what would that look like? In and of itself, that sounds like a small number. But then I imagine, wait, it's a diamond, though that'll be big.
2: <laughs> you can look it up on on Google. Kohinoor, at the moment, is located in the Queen Mother's crown. Oh, uh, now this this has a this stone. Me, really?
1: yeah,
2: good reaction. I thought you'd say that. This stone has an amazing history. It's as you can imagine. It's a controversial stone, mm-hmm. some of its history, which I'm not going to go into the, the ins and outs. Um, this is probably not the, the time or the place. But the first record Pinched from it,
1: India, basically. <laughs> well, is that the summary?
2: That's pretty much it in a That's nutshell. the
1: – okie dokie.
2: That's it in a nutshell. <laughs>
1: Great. That's our history.
2: <laughs> so the, the history of the stone actually goes back to 1740, though. Oh, wow! And it has changed hands and been inherited and um taken through warfare and so on and so on and so on until eventually it came to the hands of the British Crown jewels. It was mined on the in what's called the Kaure mine. Now, if you look then at the Imperial state crown, that's a different stone again in the front of the Imperial State Crown, you will see what's called a cushion shaped Stone. So this is it's a bit like a a square, but with rounded corners and sides. Okay. So it's it's the soft square, and this is the Cullinan diamond. The Cullinan diamond is equally as beautiful. It's equally as impressive, and it was actually cut from what was, and I think still might be, the largest colorless and internally flawless diamond ever. Wow! Oh wow! The Kohinoor. Now is 105.6. That's its cut weight. The rough weight of the Cullinan diamond was 3,106.8 carats.
3: That's a lot. What?
2: That puts it at over 621 grams.
1: What? My goodness. Where, Where was this one pinched from?
2: This one was from Africa, South Africa. Right, right, right. From the Transvaal region, the, it was named after Thomas Cullinan, who was the owner of the mine. The government of South Africa bought the diamond from the mine owner.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: They tried to sell it for two years, but nobody could raise the money that they wanted. So they then gave it to Edward VI for his birthday. The stone was given to the king, and for about two years, they looked at the stone and thought, okay, look, this is the biggest colorless, flawless diamond ever found. How are we going to cut this thing to get the best out of it? In the end, they turned to the Asher brothers of um, Belgium, who were incredible diamond cutters, and Joseph Asher, the older of the two brothers, came over, and this was in 1907, to cut the diamond. It was literally, it was a chisel and a hammer and a prayer, rather a big prayer. When he struck the first blow to cut the Cullinan diamond, he fainted.
0: Here I have some follow-up questions, because actually now that we're talking about cutting stones, I mean, there must be an, an, a fair amount of waste. Mm.
2: There, There is, there's an astonishing amount of, of waste so much so actually with the Cullen and Diamond that the chips that came off the workshop floor were given to the Asher brothers as payment
0: oh wow oh god
2: That was how they were paid <laughs> but yes you you are right when you when you cut any gemstone you have to bear in mind that you can never add anything back you can only ever take away yeah mm. so there is a lot of wastage
1: so we've we've sort of covered two main i suppose features of gemstones, um, one is the I suppose the chemical makeup that define one type of gemstone and another, and it, then it's the cutting, well, human impact as it were, <laughs> quite um, literally on, on yeah, <laughs> quite literally on the mineral on the uh, the rock as it were.
2: The, the cutting of any gemstone is, is always fraught with a bit of nerves, really, because mm. you've got this beautiful piece of rough and you can see that there is potentially a beautiful stone in that that piece of rough.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But the fact is that when you go to cut it, you never really know what's going to happen. So there is always that bit of tension of, of what's going to happen, we don't know. And I think it is always true to say that the true end result really lies within the stone and what the stone wants to do, rather than the artisan abilities of the person who's cutting the stone. The exception to that, of course, is with modern cutting techniques, which are very often done by laser.
0: I was going to ask, like, is this still done by hand or is it now mechanised?
2: Particularly the sort of bright faceted coloured gemstones, they're done by Uh hand. So as a result, what you plan to get out of that stone, all of the planning is done by computer and what you plan to get out of it is pretty much what you're going to get. There will always be some degree of wastage, but what you want is what you get, pretty much.
1: Can I go back to deterioration Mm. again? Because I know nothing about the deterioration of stones, gemstones, minerals, any of that. Are they light sensitive? Can laser cutting shorten the life of a gemstone?
2: Well, the, the, the laser cutting imparts energy into the matrix of the stone. It has mm. to it's mm-hmm. usually the form of, of of either light, heat, or both. Mm-hmm. There will be a effect upon mm. the stone. And what degree that effect is really does depend on the gemstone. Mm-hmm. If you take, for example, a gemstone like Kunzite, which is a, a beautifully tinged pinky purple stone,
1: mm-hmm. if you
2: leave that in sunlight, it will fade. Oh, What's that? Made,
1: what's that made of chemically?
2: Ah, now I knew you were going to ask me. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that one.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry. sorry.
2: Um, no, it's fine. I actually wrote down a few, but that wasn't one of them.
1: I literally only knew. Well, obviously, you know, you know, in theory, if you have this sort of inclusion or impurity, then it will give it a different colour. oh how interesting! But I have a a blue diamond engagement ring, which I know is boron.
2: It is indeed. Very nice. Yes,
1: and it makes it super pretty. And that's as far as it goes in terms of my understanding of materials (laughs) in those terms.
2: Yeah, boron is is what turns diamonds blue. So, uh, yes, you're you're absolutely right. Kunzite is an interesting one. It's actually lithium aluminium silicate oxide. Oh, It is a a pink violetish purple, and it can be a very light pink, or it can range to a really intense violet. The problem with kunzite, though, is that if you leave it in sunlight for too long, it turns yellow.
1: Uh, Oh, wow.
2: um, The the colouring elements are not particularly stable.
1: Interesting.
0: So
2: that leads me to think that you certainly wouldn't cut kunzite with a laser.
1: Yeah. Okay.
2: You would have. You'd have to cut it by more, more traditional means. That's super interesting. I love that. Yeah. So that, so that's kunzite. Here's what makes gemstones really, really interesting, in my view: aquamarine, emerald, morganite, vanadium beryl, mashishi, bixbite, heliodor, and peach beryl. What are these words? <laughs> Haha, <laughs> they're, all, they're all, in essence, they're all types of emerald.
0: Oh, are oh, not emeralds chromium-based? or
2: Emer- Exactly that. And the, the, this is the thing. You've got a ruby, which is turned red by chromium. Oh. But the thing that gives emeralds their green colour is chromium. The way the chromium reacts and the result that it gives depends on what it's actually in.
1: Oh, fascinating. And so what's emerald?
2: Emerald belongs to a group called the beryl group. Not unsurprisingly, the beryl group contains beryllium, and it's actually aluminium, beryllium, oxide, silicate. So you've got aluminium, beryllium, oxygen, and silicon. That's the base beryl, and the base beryl is totally clear. But then you've got also got aquamarines. Aquamarine is the blue emerald. You've got Morganite, which is the the, the pink emerald. Huh. Or, oh. And then you've got the peach beryl. Vanadium is a, a reddish brown colour. And Bixbite, which is the rarest of them all, is scarlet red. Oh. This is all one family. The Garnet family is even bigger. Oh my God. <laughs> there's even more. Uh, I've got so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. There's 14 different garnets.
0: Oh my God. Oh, Are they all different colors as well?
2: In essence, yes. There's there's quite a few wow. greens, but they're different <laughs> shades or hues of green. Yeah,
0: yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, wow.
2: Then you've got things like quartzes. Um, There's Now, quartzers will probably surprise you in that. A citrine, which we know to be bright yellow, mm-hmm. is a quartz, as is amethyst, which is a beautiful purple.
1: Oh, I did know that about amethyst. Okay.
2: And rose quartz is that beautiful pink. Oh, of mm. course. Yellow. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's tiger's eye, and these are all quartzes. Oh.
1: And that's that the word quartz refers to the actual chemical makeup.
2: Yeah.
1: What is the chemical makeup of a quartz?
2: Very simply, it's silicon oxide. Mm hmm and then you've got various different elements that mix in to, to give it the the different colors one thing that you you find particularly with citrines and jewelry modern jewelry this is is a lot of it is actually heat treated amethyst because when you heat treat amethyst it turns it into citrine
0: oh what oh, that's surely cheating
2: <laughs> well it, it is but as long as as long as jewelers are upfront and honest about it
1: yeah 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 yeah
2: Interesting. So the, the the implications for for conservation is that really you've got to know what you're dealing with.
0: Yeah, cuz that means that if you're playing around with heat treatments that might be a real problem. Oh yeah. Oh. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. You know, you can very easily change the appearance of a stone just by overheating the stone when you're when you're dealing with the metal.
1: That would be a really bad day at work. <laughs> Yeah, it would.
2: And I think most jewellers, most making jewellers, can relay stories of of, um, a lovely stone that they set into something and then they had to just heat up the claw just to get it to bend over and all of a sudden the stone either shatters, cracks. Oh, my God. Or just turns a different colour? Oh,
1: no. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God.
2: Oh, that's a stressful thing. I day. don't
1: think anything I... Uh, yeah. Well, no, there's... I mean, conservation is fraught with those sorts of catastrophic, like, well, that's never going to be the same again <laughs> yep. moments. Yep. Um, but yeah. But I, I rarely do I consider it as a sort of ultimate, completely irreversible chemical change. <laughs> it's normally like, well, that's now, you know, torn. And I will have to stitch it back together and it will always be torn yeah. rather than, well, that's never going to be purple again.
2: No, that, that, that's the thing. If, if, you, if you change the appearance of a gemstone, it is in, I would say, 99% of instances, it's impossible to get them back.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: It is really, really difficult. Um, so that, that's why it's so important to know what the material is that you're dealing with, because it tells you, in effect, what you can get away with.
0: Rewinding to when I was little, uh, once upon a time, my mum worked in a jewellery store. Uh, this was long before I was born, but she still had like a little chart with very tiny fragments of the different stones inset into them, and like the names of them. And I was fascinated, wildly fascinated by this as a child. Like, oh my god, that's what diamond looks like. It won't have been diamond, but you know, <laughs> <all> <laughs> like, oh my God, this is what a ruby looks like and stuff like that. And I was so fascinated by these things. However, this is massively upping the stakes here in that many different kinds of gemstones can be red <laughs> and many different <laughs> kinds of gemstones can be green. Like this is already getting quite complicated, actually. You can't just look at it and go, it's it's a green one. So I'd clearly know what's going on here. <laughs>
2: That's, you're absolutely right. It's uh, what is a red stone? Yeah. Of course, it's going to be a ruby. Or is it?
0: Yeah, exactly. Or is it? Yeah.
2: It could actually be glass. It could be garnet. It could be a spinel.
0: What's spinel? I've never even heard of that one. <laughs>
1: neither.
2: Spinel is magnesium aluminium oxide. and In fact, I'm going to tell you another story about a famous spinel. The Black Prince ruby, no less.
0: So, not a ruby. <laughs>
2: Definitely not a ruby. <laughs> in fact, it is a spinel. And guess where it is?
1: In it, a piece of thieved jewellery from Sumbira.
2: It's in, it's in the imperial state crown. Oh. Oh,
1: oh the that, big red one that I'm looking at because I still have that image search up. Oh, nice. That's the
2: one. That's the one. Oh. The wow. big, sort of globular shape red yep. stone that has a very small stone set into it. Mm-hmm. Well, the big globular stone is a spinel. It is not a ruby. Mm. It's called the Black Prince ruby. But in fact, it's actually a spinel. The little stone that's set into it is, in fact, a ruby. (laughs)
1: Uh.
0: (laughs) Somehow pleasing, but also annoying. Yeah.
2: yeah. (laughs) weird. The reason reason that was done was that James I, and this this shows you how far back this um, stone actually goes, James I um, had that area of the uh, the Black Prince Ruby drilled so that it could be set mm-hmm. as a pendant. This is one big pendant, but, you know, uh, that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. Wow. That was the little hole where the, the, the drill mark was. And when it was set into the Imperial State Crown, um, obviously the, the, the hole didn't look so good. Which is, yeah. they filled it in with a ruby. That's that's the top and bottom of it. Wow. But the, the, the Black Prince ruby, again, it has a massive history dating back to 1366 and various different battles and changing hands and what have you. But in fact, in 1366, there was an uprising in Spain against Don Pedro. It was actually his brother that... Created this uprising against him. Classic move. Family. Yeah, no, classic move. <laughs>
1: Families, hey?
2: Classic move. <laughs> no, I don't like my brother, so I'm going to have an uprising of him. The Black Prince was the son of Edward III, who was on the throne at the time, and he went over to help Don Pedro. And he requested the Black Prince Ruby in payment. Mm. So in 1367, it ended up in the hands of Edward III.
1: So you've described it as a globular. Yes. Is it a cut?
2: No. Th- this is a. It's more what you might call a stone in the rough. It's polished. Right. But right. Right. It's not. It's not faceted.
1: Okay. So the grubby outside bits have been taken off. That's but right. Not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Right. Yeah. The, you you would say the 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 scuffs, the cracks, the the the, the rough edges have been taken off.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that's a fair point because not not all gemstones we come across will necessarily be cut as such. They will. No, exactly.
1: I have a lot of questions about this sort of thing. <laughs> do, do you want to ask them? <laughs> yes, please. So, um, oh, which one to ask first? So, I suppose I'll follow on from the topic of the rough outsidey bits. Mm-hmm. You mentioned cracks as well.
2: Yeah.
1: How often do you find um, in gemstone conservation that internal cracking affects the lifetime or future deterioration of a gemstone
2: in historic jewelry actually very rarely
1: Mm -hmm. oh
2: there's a good reason for that which is that if there was a, a fissure within the stone or crack or an inclusion that meant that the stone was going to over a period of time crack. In fact, it's very likely that it would crack as soon as the stone was set.
1: Ah right. It, so it's it, already already happened, basically.
2: And yeah, this is the yeah. thing. And because you when you set a stone, you have to get the claws or the the, the metal as close to the stone. Mm. Put, touching it as mm-hmm. you can, that tends to mean that you're going to put some degree of pressure mm-hmm. on the stone.
1: Mm.
2: If that inclusion was so close to the surface that it was it, the stone was going to crack,
1: mm-hmm.
2: then the time that it would crack, it would be in setting.
1: Okay.
0: Okay. So, arguably, the most stressful time for a piece of jewellery in its lifetime is is to be made, rather than.
2: Yeah, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. And and the my worst Anglo-Saxon language is always when I'm setting stones. <laughs> always, without <laughs> a shadow of a doubt. Soldering can be stressful, but setting stones is, oof. And some stones are worse than others. What's most temperamental? Emeralds. Oh.
1: Oh. Why?
2: Because of the crystal matrix of the stone, means that it's very brittle. This is something that I think is worth touching on: is the difference between hardness and toughness. Mm-hmm. If you take a diamond, for example, a diamond is incredibly hard. It's the hardest natural substance in, known to man. That's why we use it to cut glass. Exactly. Natural substance known to man. There are harder, but they are not natural. So you've got the stone. It's the hardest natural substance known to man, but it is actually brittle.
1: I didn't know that. Okay.
2: I have seen, this was going back many, many years when I I worked in a jewellers, a one carat diamond ring toppled off a stand and bounced down a metal spiral staircase. Oh, wow. And it seemed to hit just about every, every step on the way down. <laughs> when the person that dropped it got to the bottom and picked up the ring, the ring well, it was a little bit of a dent in the metal, but the biggest problem was that the stone was nowhere to be seen. Ugh. It had shattered.
1: I didn't know that that could happen. Huh.
2: Yep. Diamond can shatter. And this is the, the, the thing about big diamonds is that where you've got a big surface area, you've got a lot of space
1: mm, for yeah. it
2: to actually crack or shatter. And very often when you look un- at a diamond under a, a magnifying glass or a good magnifying glass or a microscope, on the very edges between the, the flat surfaces where it's been cut, you can see that the line between the two surfaces isn't actually straight anymore. It's chipped and abraded. Ooh. And that's down to natural hair and hair. And abrasion is probably the greatest effect... On gemstones.
0: That's funny because I always think of them as so tough, like so hard. You know, that's
2: uh... well. Well, let's let's contrast diamond with sapphire. Okay. It's not quite as hard as diamond.
0: Yeah, it's like a nine out of ten.
2: That's right. It's nine. When we say nine, we're using the Mohs scale of hardness. There are others, but the the sapphire is not quite as hard, but it is a lot tougher. A better workhorse. Um, you could argue that it is. Hmm. You could argue that it is a, a, a tougher stone a, a better a better choice as a engagement ring, perhaps. But that's not to say that diamond is soft or particularly vulnerable. Okay. It's not. It really isn't. Because if you contrast diamonds with emerald, emerald is not as hard. It's seven, seven and a half on the most scale, but it is a lot more brittle. Mm, okay. So, a lot of stone setters will actually tell you that, particularly emeralds, it's 50-50. Oh. Mm-hmm. They really are quite brittle. And that goes for other gemstones as well. So, for example, if you take a savorite, which is a garnet, it's an apple green garnet. I always cringe when I have to set a savorite <laughs> Beautiful, beautiful stones. But I would say, for me, one in every four would crack.
1: Wow. That's
0: they're, they're terrible.
2: I, I love setting sapphires because they're such a safe bed
1: <laughs> yes. that's a
0: low stress option
1: yeah
2: yes exactly yeah exactly
1: so do you find i suppose from a conservation point of view is there sort of i suppose are there case studies of conservators dealing with cracked precious stones
2: Yes, there are. As you can imagine, not so many of them because mm. it's quite a niche area.
1: Yes. <laughs> but there,
2: there, are, there are case studies and there are ways that you can not truly repair the stone, but you can stabilize it. Mm. It's being cracked. You can stabilize and and try and make good to some mm-hmm. extent. And one of the ways that you can do that is to use some, in some cases, adhesives. The catch with the adhesives is this problem called refractive index. I was going to
0: say, we're on the glass problem now.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. we are, aren't we? Yeah.
2: So you, you'll, you'll know yourselves with glass. If you don't use the right adhesive, the repair is very, very visible.
1: Mm.
2: Okay, gemstones tend to be quite a lot smaller, so it's not, it's not quite so visible. But You're also meant to look at them,
0: you know? Yeah,
2: exactly. They are they are meant to be looked at. So really, we we want to use an adhesive that has the same refractive index as the gemstone, because that way, in theory, the repair will be as near as damn it optically invisible. Wow! So there's of course there's there's ways and means of of spotting the the repairs, but. That's one example of how we can stabilize gemstones.
1: And when we're talking about, I suppose that something that's interesting me slightly as we talk about this is that, um, I mean, I'm deeply interested in this kitten. I have to say, he's he's just <laughs> he's divine, a isn't he? Isn't he divine? <laughs> this is perfect. Can he record with us all the time? Oh, this is <laughs> Ah, brilliant expertise <laughs> good <laughs> historical knowledge kitten <laughs> what, what do you need what's interesting me oh there's again i've got so many different questions because i know nothing about this topic when we're talking about how people conserve gemstones and what they have to take into account are we talking about an in museum scenario or are we talking about hey this is the value of the of the gemstone on the market and how is that affected by adhesives and stuff?
2: Well, in all honesty, it was, it's one thing I really don't get involved with is mm. values of, of anything that I work on.
1: Yeah, probably a good call.
2: Yeah, mainly because I, some of the things that I've, I've worked on, if I knew the value, I think I'd be shaking like a leaf.
0: <laughs> <laughs> also, I think that's so relatable for most conservators yes, who are like, it? don't want to know. We don't want to know. You can write it down on in the insurance paperwork and exactly. I'm not going to look.
2: Yep, yeah, I'm exactly. Gonna look. So I, I try <laughs> sort of. I try to sort of put that in the back of my mind, but certainly there will be an effect on the commercial value of, mm-hmm. of a, a piece. There are so many things that can influence the commercial value of a piece, though. It is very difficult to say what that effect is going to be. Mm. The other thing is very often, particularly with things that are are of such prestige, if you gave ten people. A piece to value,
1: mm-hmm. you would
2: come back with ten different values. Uh, it is so opinion based. It really yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a very subjective thing.
1: So can we skip back to something we mentioned briefly um and then got sidetracked with other interesting things? What you're saying um the key thing for a conservator and a jeweller dealing with gemstones is to know what you're dealing with. How do we tell? How do we know? In, unless obviously if we're using XRF <laughs> then we know how you tell you fire at the thing and then you follow in the instructions and you identify it like everything else. If you don't have XRF, how do you tell?
2: Well, there's the the identification of of gemstones is is an interesting subject in itself because gemstones have a set of results from different tests that Mm -hmm. are very very specific to those gemstones so if you take for example let's take a a white diamond is that stone is it a diamond is it a moissanite is it a piece of glass is it a zircon is it a piece of quartz to look at you don't know not at first glance so let's start eliminating 1 or 2. What do we know about diamond? Diamond is singly refractive. So what that means is that when light goes into a piece of diamond, it bends one specific way. If, however, light goes into a piece of moissanite, it gets bent two ways. Mm-hmm. What that means is when you look at the stone, if you look through the top of the stone and you look at the facets underneath, looking through the stone in a piece of moissanite you'll see double the number of facets that you should do the effect of doubling the number of facets so let's go back to the diamond it has the right number of facets so you can say that it is not a moissanite that's one example of how you would eliminate another example is to look at the refractive index itself each Stone has a very specific refractive index. And this is the degree to which the stone bends light as it passes from air into the stone. So, if we take, for example, the refractive index of diamond, which is 3.41, if you put a stone on a refractometer and it shows up something completely different, then it's not diamond. So, you can start to eliminate what stones this white stone that you've Mm -hmm. got is by these various different results. Another example is to look at the light, reflected light, through a spectrometer. If you look through a spectrometer, what you see is a rainbow of light. Because the idea is that the spectrometer takes the light and it splits it up into the colours of the rainbow. Mm -hmm. However, what happens if the stone absorbs colours of specific wavelengths? what you see is in that spectrum you'll see a black line where the light of that wavelength has been absorbed mm. cool so it's called an absorption spectrum the, the light that comes through any stone has these black lines and these black lines the absorption spectrum of a stone are very very specific to that material so that's that's a, another way that that you can that you can identify and there are various different ways that you can identify what the the material is um so those those are just the perhaps the the rolls-royce ways of
0: all of these sound like you have to very much remove the stone from its whatever it's set into to like properly manhandle it is that right
2: best practice to identify truly identify Mm. a, a stone would be to take it out of its setting yeah that's not the best practice for conservation.
0: Yeah, I was no. gonna say like that does sound quite <laughs> that, intervention-y.
2: <laughs> yes, it's it's a bit too intervention-y for you tend to use the techniques that are the least interventive possible first. Mm. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you've got a redstone, is it a spinel or is it a ruby? One of the first things I would do is put long wave ultraviolet light on it. hmm If it glows like a, a beacon glows this bright pink the likelihood is it's a ruby uh.
0: the reason is
2: that's the chromium
0: so would that be true of any stone that contains
2: chromium not necessarily oh god of course not, not <laughs> that, <laughs> that, would course
1: that would be simple
2: <laughs> what are wild. you thinking jenny that would be far too so easy
0: <laughs> i thought i was onto something here like i should <laughs>
2: No, not not every stone will fluoresce the same way. Hmm. If you take, for example, diamonds, in my wife's engagement ring there is ten diamonds. Four of them fluoresce, six don't.
1: What?
2: One of them fluoresces green, others fluoresce blue.
1: Why?
2: Good question. Very Why? good question.
1: I mean obviously the question she's asking you is, What are you doing with my engagement ring? Leave it alone. Stop <laughs> <laughs> shining UV in it.
2: <laughs> to some extent The true understanding of fluorescence isn't entirely known. Mm -hmm. Why? Some stones will fluoresce bright pink. Mm. Some stones will fluoresce a more mild pink. Some diamonds will fluoresce a pale greenish colour and others will fluoresce a a sort of a very bright blue colour.
0: Is it just up to natural variations within the stone because it's it's a natural material?
2: It is. It's the natural variations within the crystal matrix of the stone.
0: Does that mean that... Synthetic stones would fluoresce more evenly.
2: In theory, yes. In practice, I'm not convinced. Um, <laughs> Again, I've I thought seen... I was onto
0: something, but nope.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, I've I've seen synthetic stones that uh, really should fluoresce, but actually don't.
0: Oh,
2: so it's hmm. it, it's a great theory, but in practice, mm, mm.
1: how do you feel about? Um... Synthetic stones from a conservation point of view?
2: From a conservation point of view, historically, you see very, very few synthetic mm. stones. The reason is that the technology for synthetic stones mm-hmm. is incredibly modern.
1: Yeah. Mm.
2: So if you're looking at conservation of something from the 1950s or 60s, mm-hmm. you might see a synthetic stone.
0: Okay.
2: But if you're looking at something, that was made in the, I don't know, the Georgian period, for example. Mm. And if you identify a synthetic stone in that, Mm -hmm. then you know it's been altered. Yeah. yeah.
0: How long have people been putting coloured bits of glass in and pretending it's something fancier? (laughs) Forever.
2: (laughs) Forever. (laughs)
0: Forever.
2: (laughs) But, you know, these, these stones that we've been talking about are all actually relatively quite hard. Mm. There are a lot of stones in the the gemstone array that are a lot softer. Ooh, mm-hmm. like what? So, for example, turquoise.
0: Oh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah,
2: it is really, really soft. So, with turquoise, you've got to be incredibly careful. I've I've actually heard some jewelers say that as much as we use turquoise in the jewelry industry, it's not really suitable for particularly things like rings. Oh, really? It's well. The the thing is, a a ring on your hand is high impact. Yeah, it really is. It's a high impact area. So, why then would you take a gemstone that has a hardness of, I think, three or four? Oh, okay, wow. And put that on your hand.
1: Pretty though, isn't it?
2: (laughs) But that that is the sole reason that we do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's the sole reason that we do it. But yeah, there there are a lot of very much softer stones mm. that as beautiful as they are they are much softer mm. so there again you've got to know what you're looking at to know what you can and can't get away with and a lot of what we do with conservation of gemstones is actually more about cleaning them
0: mm. okay that's talk so cleaning what's what what can that look like i mean first of all how mucky does it get? I suppose with well-used <laughs> jewellery that might actually be quite mucky.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it can really get very, very mucky. If you take, for example, a, a diamond ring, you take it out of the store when you first buy it and it sparkles. Give it two or three months and it will be dull.
1: That's quick turnaround, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it is.
2: It depends on your lifestyle, but it, it can be to to author as little as two or three months, and it can be really quite dull. And the reason is that things like hand cream or soap, dead skin cells, all of these things build up underneath the stone, and that's what kills the the sparkle. Oh, right.
1: Uh...
0: What
2: happens is light goes into the stone, mm-hmm. and because of this caked-on dirt and grot and detritus, it affects the ability of the light to bounce around in st- inside the stone and then bounce back out at you.
0: Mm-hmm. So that's almost an argument for cleaning even historic jewellery and collections, because otherwise they can't be looked at the way that they should be.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting.
1: Oh, that'll be fun if it's in a setting of a metal that is uh, best not to be cleaned too often.
2: <laughs> well, thankfully, with uh, the, with jewellery metals, we we're actually really mm. quite lucky because they they withstand quite a lot of cleaning.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: But the gemstone is the thing that changes in appearance more often than not, and that is purely down to this build-up of of dirt and everyday life. So, how do we clean them then? That, again, depends on knowing what you've got. If you take, for example, a diamond, you can take a diamond ring or a diamond pendant and you can put it into a sonic cleaner.
0: I was going to say the ultrasonic cleaner comes to mind.
2: Ultrasonic, fabulous. Fantastic. For crying out loud, don't do that with an emerald.
1: (laughs) Oh, God. Will it just fall into bits?
2: Well, if the if there is an inclusion that comes anywhere near cl- close to the surface, you can have the stone shatter.
1: Oh, mm. Yay!
2: But what's even more likely is that, particularly with the older emeralds, is a lot of them are oiled. Oh! And what that does is it reduces the apparent visibility of some of the inclusions inside it, so you get an improvement of the appearance of the stone.
0: This is cheating.
2: <laughs> That's, well, as long as you're upfront about it. Yeah. I mean, well,
0: yeah, yeah, and yeah. And
2: in fact, to be honest with you, it's a, it's an industry standard. Oh, yeah, okay. If you put that emerald into an ultrasonic and the ultrasonic is usually heated, usually has detergents, you're going to change the appearance of the stone because some of that oil will be leached out
0: does that happen to any other stones? or is this like common for more uh, a broader range of
2: stones? Um, it, it is. It's not just emeralds. Mm. Emeralds is the one that you will always hear quoted, but in fact, it can happen with things like sapphires as well. Okay, interesting. Sapphires are are oiled. A lot of stones are oiled, and it, it is just purely to minimise or to. To improve the appearance of the stone, to to minimise the effect of the inclusions.
0: So is this stone sort of at the the stage where they're being cut and prior to being distributed to jewellers, for example? Or like, what stage is this applied?
2: It's it's at the point of of cutting and and preparing the stone. Uh, So the oil is usually a cedar oil. And it is from the Juniper's Virginian cedars. So that's what we, we tend to use now. But I would imagine various different or Yeah, historically, yeah. And actually that's that's one reason to be even more careful.
0: Yeah. How do you even approach that? Like if you have if you have an emerald, say, how how would you even approach that? Like
2: Knowing which which oil has been used and whether or not you can use whatever mm. on it. I think that the safest bet, the safest way to approach that is do as little as possible.
0: Yeah, fair. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the conservation way to begin with, probably.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just keep keep it safe and just yeah. do as very little as possible.
0: Oh, fascinating.
2: Things like a very soft toothbrush and a very dilute solution of washing up liquid. Oh,
1: uh, okay.
2: That, that can do a lot of, of good for a lot of gemstones. Mm-hmm. Then you might sort of graduate onto a very light solution of alcohol. Then you can go on to various other solvents. But by that stage, really, it ought to be clean. <laughs> Always start with the most conservative approach.
0: I really feel for all the people at home, you know, like people who have jewelry and collect jewelry, uh, just chucking things not just on a cleaner, and hoping for the best. I'm really feeling for them now that this is like, oh God, that might be a terrible idea. <laughs> Bill, what would you say to someone who has jewelry in their collection and it's sort of more of a general? Uh, objects conservator maybe or even curator what would be a good step to figuring out what is in your collection and what sort of care you might need like how do you get those sorts of identification skills or is it just bringing an expert is is that the best
2: realistically you need someone who is a gemologist Mm -hmm. there are specific qualifications that you can do that will give you the skills to identify and to work with gemstones confidently. Mm-hmm. If you are in any doubt about what you've got, always, always, always ask a gemologist. I, I don't know any gemologist that would be unhappy to work with a curator mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. a conservator to try and work out what is the best course of action. If in doubt, ask.
0: And out of curiosity, how, how easy is it to find a gemologist? How does one contact one well if
2: you contact the uh, gemological association of great britain they are all gemologists so they will be able to give you the name and address of a, a gemologist in your local area the national association of jewelers again they will have lists of people who have done at least their qualifications in gemology If you're in America, the Gemological Institute of America, GIA, they will know who will be in your local area. Europe, there are various different organizations, and they're all just as good as each other.
1: Nice.
0: Good shout. Thank you.
1: So I feel that this is one of those, and that's a whole episode, things, but I'm quite interested in pigments, and mineral pigments. Could we brush past the subject as though I suppose as a precursor to another episode?
2: Yeah, um, certainly. I know of a couple of of minerals that are, have been used over the centuries as pigments for the paints. One of them, perhaps one of the most famous, is lapis lazuli.
1: Yeah, that's mm-hmm. the the only one I know of at the moment.
2: Well, when you crush that down, that gives you a blue called supermarine blue. <laughs> And I know that was used uh, as a a pigment with carrier oils. Another one is azurite, which again is another blue. Mm -hmm. Various different minerals have been used as as pigments. But certainly knowing the recipes of the the various pigments that you've got will help any conservator.
1: Mm -hmm. As much as they can be identified, I suppose.
2: As much as they can be identified. Yeah and that is the beauty of things like xrf. Yes. <laughs> yeah, if you if you've got if you've got a, a handheld xrf that could you an awfully good idea.
1: I'm really waiting for that technology to become financially accessible to everybody. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I feel like I wait, it, it should be, it should have happened by now, but it just hasn't. And a quick question about the human involvement. And identification, I suppose, at the same time. In what way is the impression of a, the identity of a stone changed by its treatment, whether it's been faceted or not? Does it tend to be fashion over the, over the years? Does there tend to be a, a, a kind of stone that just is never faceted or never, you know, whatever the opposite of faceted is?
2: <laughs> it's, it's actually a term called cabochon. Oh! If something is cut in cabochon, it's cut as a dome.
1: I have heard that word before, actually, but I didn't make the link at all.
2: Yeah. So so that's that's a, a domed gemstone. It's called in cabochon. The way in which you cut a stone or polish it, as in in cabochon, really depends on getting the best out of the stone. Mm-hmm it also does depend on the physical properties of the stone as well so for example with quartz one of the ways that you can you, you can cut a, a piece of quartz either faceted or mm-hmm. a cabochon and very often you'll see pieces of quartz that are cut as a cabochon and then underneath them they'll have a slice of a, of another gemstone so you get this uh, this oh. sort of gem- and that's the, the quartz almost forms a magnifying effect of the what's underneath it.
1: Oh, that sounds very nice.
2: Yeah. So it depends on the material because if you take a diamond, I don't know of any diamonds that have ever been cut in cabochon because it's too brittle and too damn hard.
1: Mm. Ah, interesting. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. If
2: you take emeralds, emeralds are very often cut in cabochon.
1: Because they're soft enough.
2: Exactly. They're soft enough, but the way – they fracture Mm. and the way the the, the polishing process will affect it, the stone allows them to be polished in cabochon. Mm. Then there are other stones that you could cut them in cabochon, but then why would you want to? Mm -hmm. Then there are are other gemstones that you can cut either way.
0: I have uh, questions that might muddy the water, but how do we all feel about things like pearls? Because they're oh. very um, jewellery adjacent, sort of get bundled in with gemstones, even though technically they are made by living things.
1: Similar to, oh no, I was going to say similar to amber, but that's not the case, is it? Because that's, that is a, that's a... That's
0: another organic material, though. It is made by a living thing, a tree. Uh, so actually yeah. it's, the, you're, not, you're
1: not wrong, like
0: that is also made by a living thing, so...
1: True, but has that not been affected by heat and pressure in the the traditional stone ways?
2: It is still an organic-based.
1: Okay. Amber.
2: So pearls, Mother of Pearl, Amber, Jet, these are all organic gemstones.
1: Oh, yes, of course. Jet, I always forget about Jet. Mm. The gothest of the stones. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, actually the Victorian morning stone, pearls are organic. Pearls are the result of um, a foreign body, usually a bacterium, in either an oyster or a mussel. It's always a bivalve. Mm. And what happens is the bivalve, it tries to encapsulate that invader with the substance called nacre. And that then has the effect of not just covering the invader, the bacterium or the grain of sand, it also covers the rest of the inside of the shell. And that's why you get Mother of Pearl.
0: Which we also famously use for loads of things. Yeah.
2: Yes, we do. So then you've got Amber. Amber is the fossilised tree sap.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And famously, you can find insects and leaves, mm-hmm. and all sorts of foreign bodies trapped inside the sap as it's oozed out of the tree.
1: And then you can resurrect dinosaurs, you
2: know. <laughs> I knew we were going
1: to go there. Now, I knew of it. Course, I, <laughs> I couldn't help it. I'm sorry. I couldn't just all be grateful that I didn't start singing the theme That's true. I mean <laughs> That'll be stuck in everyone's head. <laughs> what sort of things
0: do we need to worry about in terms of conservation with those sorts of materials? Are they mm. presumably not susceptible to light?
2: No, generally speaking, they're not susceptible to light, but they are susceptible to just about everything else.
1: <laughs> oh, great. Oh, wow, really? I didn't know that.
2: Annoyingly, anything chemical, anything abrasion, anything physical, you can and very likely will damage organic materials. So, the general rule of thumb with these is clean them very gently. And I mean very gently. Never put them into things like ultrasonic cleaners. Try never, ever to touch them with any chemical.
1: And is that alcohol included in that?
2: Alcohol, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Because uh, alcohol has a, a horrible effect of desiccating things. And that then can pit the surface of certainly pearls and, and mother of pearl. If in doubt, do now. with any organic gemstone. If in doubt, just do now. They are all very delicate. So the best course of action is wherever possible, do nothing. Yeah. So we
0: we've, we've sort of gone the full full circle with from from the very tough ones to the extremely susceptible we have, ones. We?
2: <laughs> if you are in any doubt, just ask. It's it's always the best course of action.
0: Uh gemstones and minerals don't just come in the form of uh jewelry uh, or other ornamental pieces. Of course there's also geological um samples that mm-hmm. we find in collections and in our own homes, you know, people often keep gemstones and uh, crystals and things like that, uh, either for decorative purposes or for spiritual purposes, in fact. Uh, So we do find them in our everyday lives as well. Um, And uh, I had a little chat with uh, Kate Andrew uh, about
3: minerals. Well, I'm Kate Andrew. I'm um, an accredited conservator, and I'm an accredited as a geological conservator. I was actually one of the very first people in the UK to go through programme of geological conservation training. So my background is I have a geology degree. After I graduated, I got my first job as a museum curator. And then I went off to Leicester University to do the Museum Studies postgraduate course. Whilst I was there, I kind of began to get pretty interested in conservation. I mean, I've always liked mending things. Then there was this opportunity came up as a geology conservation intern training ship, traineeship based at the Horniman Museum. I mean, I think they had thought that they would get a conservator who they would train to be a geology conservator, but they got me was a museum geology curator who had to train to be a conservator. Then in my second year, I managed to go for a whole year to the Canadian Museum of Nature to work under mm-hmm. Rob Waller. Rob's just kind of the world expert on geology conservation. So I was his intern for a year. Also did a really good, interesting research project based at the Canadian Conservation Institute, looking at the effect of gaseous pollutants on mineral collections. Yeah. And then after that, I came back and I was freelance for about three years. Then I went back into being a museum curator. And then for the last 10 years, I've been um, partly freelance and partly not working in museums at all. I've now moved on to conserving giant bits of geology known as buildings built out of stone.
0: Wow. That's really cool. Mostly, I'm curious, like what sort of minerals can be found in collections because i'm thinking a lot of mixed museum collections do tend to have a bit of geology and like a a mineral drawer or something and i'm like what do you find in those in
3: general well i mean i've done masses of collection assessments during my time so that could be anything from like you say a drawer with 20 specimens in or a, a shoe box with somebody's collection in to huge, really, really good systematic mineral collection. Well, it also very much depends which part of the UK, say in the southeast of England, you'd find easily as mineral specimens would be marcosite nodules from the chalk, maybe some nice calcite crystals. Somebody who was perhaps an amateur collector might buy quite a lot of stuff because it's quite easy to purchase uh, sectioned agates, nice crystals, But even those things have issues. So quite often you see lovely slices of agate, so circular, flat and polished. There are the nodule that's been cut in half or make lots of slices made out of it. But if you see those in a sort of cerise pink colour or a really, really bright blue or a green, they're actually dyed. So those are not natural. So. Those will fade really badly. Oh, so the ones that you find in museum gift shops, they're lies. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You're likely to maybe find some pyrite cubes. Now, if it's nice big cubes of pyrite, that's normally pretty stable. But the sort of smaller crystals, those are that's where you have instability issues because the smaller the crystal, mm. the greater the surface area to volume, and therefore pyrite is unstable above 65% relative humidity. But the instability is very much related to the crystal size. So if you have a lovely cube of pyrite, that's probably be going to be okay. But if you've got a marcasite nodule that you found on the beach that has the added benefit of being saturated with salt solution from the sea and salt's deliquesces bumps up the RH. So sodium chloride generates a relative humidity of 75%. So 75% RH plus pyrite, finely disseminated crystals equals, if you've got enough water there, sulfuric acid as well, which then burns a hole in your specimen tray and maybe through the bottom of your drawer. So with my kind of curator hat on, yeah, it's really important to like what is the system whoever has put this collection together is trying to classify it in because understanding that allows you to identify the things. So making sure you don't disassociate your specimen with its box and its label and you never throw away an old label because even though... That specimen might have been reclassified. The person who had reclassified might have got it wrong, actually uh, understanding who the collector was from the style of the handwriting it's all It's kind of mixed up with curation as well so this This is a very good book. Oh yes, uh, so uh, Kate is holding
0: up the care and conservation of geological materials, and it's by
3: Frank Frank Howie. So this is the minerals, rocks, meteorites, and lunar finds one. So it's a Butterworth book, and in here is a table that runs to about four pages of minerals subject to humidity-related phase transitions. So. In other words, things that are not stable at different relative humidity. So that could be high RH or low RH. So what is it? What's its stability field? So RH, an issue. Dirt, massive issue. So something solid and robust. Okay, if you know it's stable and it's not going to dissolve when you try and clean it, okay, but if it's got really, really fine... Crystals like some zeolite specimens from India. So at the, they're kind of puff balls of needles, they're very difficult to even handle. They form in the gas bubble holes in the lava flow. The crystals kind of grow into these holes and form the most, they look I like look like pin cushions or a, a hedgehog, say, of, of really, really fine white very very tiny crystals well you get that dirty how you just can't clean that so actually a preventative care is really really important with mineral collections
0: yeah sounds it so would you say that sort of keeping a keeping the right environment is almost trickier than
3: maybe treatment and display uh yeah i think so yes there's a whole load of mineral species that fade even if they're not (laughs) died yes exactly yes so for example, fluorite, which is quite a common British mineral, normally purple, can be purple, white, yellow, or green cubes. A lot of those are very susceptible to complete colour loss in the wrong amount of light. Even amethyst will fade in really, really strong light. So if you had a lovely amethyst crystal or a kind of geo with big am- and you've got it, <laughs> as I have once seen, on the windowsill south facing windowsill of your entrance hall of your geological museum then that's going to fade yeah some uh celestine i think it is it's a blue mineral that fades but actually if you put it back in the dark again it will recover wow what's uh, maybe one bit of advice that you'd like
0: to give someone who finds themselves in charge of a collection that includes these sorts of materials
3: Work out what classification system you're using first of all, and then phone me up. Yeah, I was going to say, ask for help is probably the next step. Yeah, yeah, ask for help, yes. Yeah. But actually protecting things from dust, Mm. because cleaning minerals is almost impossible and not actually considered particularly good practice. So making sure your specimen boxes have got lids (laughs) is... But then, but not having specimen boxes that are going to off-gas nasty things that then destroy your minerals. So um, not PVC lids. So acid-free card trays, plenty of padding. But then also uh, wadding or cotton wool was used historically. Fibers of that very easily get tangled up in fine specimens. Yeah. So kind of acid-free tissue layer over your wadding. If you're using plastozoat, then you're going to need some additional packing in as well. Yeah. What are some health and safety aspects of this? I mean, these are systematic collections. So you can get a mineral form from any chemical em- element, basically. So uh, you will you could have native lead in there, you will definitely have arsenic specimens in there, you will probably have some radioactive specimens in there. In radioactive specimens, the uh, uranium salts tend to be really violent green and yellow colours. So um, other massive problem in mineral collections is asbestiform minerals. If it's a collection that's been around for any time, somebody ought to already have done that risk assessment and bag things up, double bag them. So that risk is severely reduced. But yes, you might have chrysotile, and other blue and white asbestos specimens in there. Uh, Frank Howey's book also includes a lovely list of radioactive mineral species, a list of moderately to highly toxic minerals, cobalt, cadmium, arsenic, oh, I forgot to say anything about mercury, you can get native mercury. So you can actually get mercury that forms as little blobs on the surface of the rock matrix it's in. So lots of toxic things that you need to be aware of. And thank you,
0: Kate, for sharing your knowledge with us. Hopefully that hasn't put anyone off dealing with their geological collection. Um, As we've said time and time again in this episode, do feel free to ask for help. Help is available in many different forms. You don't have to do it alone.
2: That, that's, a, that's the thing, that the more information you've got, the better.
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: The more, the more informed you are, the, the better. And I think that goes for any form of conservation.
0: Yeah, it absolutely does. If you're enjoying The C Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return, our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page, yeah, for that $1 a month, you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers, and it's about 10% extra content on a regular basis. That's well, not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the c and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening. We're the C-word, and you will be listening to Bill Hawks, Chloe Rumsey, and me, Jenna Mathiasen. Join us next time for a Halloween special. In the meantime, check out our website at theseawood.show, tweet us at theseawoodpodcast, or simply email us on theseawoodpodcast at gmail.com. Intro and outro music, Spring Buddy The music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson. This has been a Wooden Dice production.
2: Here's the thing, though, and this this is what can make gemstone. Re- I missed some re-
1: cat action. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> sorry to that, you. that was he's, a great
2: tale. He's actually just taking himself off to bed. Oh, he's um, he's quite happy, but he's he's just curled up in a little ball.
1: <gasps> oh, sorry, please nearby ball. <laughs>